to go ahead and let our kids, it's for Children's Church, kids really wanted to keep you in for that and let you hear from Miss Trish. I know she's been some of your Children's Church leaders and, and just a vital part of your lives. So thank you, kids. Have, look at them, though. They're out. They're gone. Like, you're done. <laughs> Let's move. Let's go. And uh, how grateful we are for our, our children and for uh, the, the lives that they are and, and all that they represent. And uh, again, on this special Sunday across the, uh, across the, the nation, throughout the church, and we just celebrate and, and we, just, we, just stand, we just stand together um, for life and, and we pray for, for young women in particular who are going through difficult decisions about pregnancies, um, seemingly impossible decisions. And we pray for young ladies who have, who have made some decisions about pregnancies, ending those pregnancies, that, uh, that perhaps have proven in subsequent days to be hurtful and just, just, uh, just difficult in their spirit. We, we, we recognize that, 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 that these are not necessarily simple or easy issues for people who are in the, the midst of that. But today, again, we stand together. We stand together for, for life, and we're so grateful for the little babies that have graced our church in recent months. We'll get to dedicate another one next Sunday, uh, so you'll want to be here for Francesca Lada's dedication, uh, and we're so grateful um, for these that have come into the world, and, and we, I want you to know, I just... I, I, I just want you to know, as your pastor and, and as a church, that, that we are so, so grateful for the way that God creates, and for us to be able to, to share in that with him, and to celebrate that, to do everything we can to promote that is what we want to be about. We truly want to be pro, pro-life. Jesus said that the thief came to steal and to kill and to destroy. But he said, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full, have it abundantly. And that full and abundant life I'm coming to discover doesn't always mean happy and laughy life. <laughs> Sometimes full and abundant life means painful and difficult and mournful even life. But it's real and it's genuine, and it's authentic, and it's checked in, and that's the kind of life that we celebrate together today. So, amen? Amen. 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 Well, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's think together this morning from God's Word for a few moments. When I was a, when I was a kid, one of our favorite games to play was hide-and-seek, um, as far as I can tell, that game is still pretty popular. All the kids just left, but, uh, you know, when I get around kids, if you're in a house and they're bored, sooner or later they start playing hide-and-seek. Uh, it doesn't take long before kids are hiding, you know, under your legs or, uh, you know, behind the door, or just making up, hide under a blanket, that, you know, 
and, and hiding from each other and seeking. I mean, it's a great game. Let's just be honest. The, the, the drama, the tension involved in hide and seek, whether you're the hider or the seeker, there is, there is, there is there's feeling involved in that. I mean, if you're the hider, just remember the days of in that spot and the seeker walking by and you trying to slow your breathing and, and be oh so quiet and not move and be still. And, and when they would walk through that room and walk out, you're just like this feeling of such great accomplishment. Yes, I hid and they saw it and they did not find. It was such a great accomplishment. Or, or if you're the seeker, I mean, there's, it's just... A, a totally different tension, but I mean, you're walking into a room and you have no idea, are there 10 people in this room or is there no one? And you have to try to uncover and behind every door or under every blanket or every nook and cranny, there could be someone there to just freak you out and they don't even have to say anything, but just look at you and you kind of know they might be there, but maybe not. And it's just so tense and so, so fun. That's why People continue to play it. Unfortunately, they also play it in their spiritual lives. And, and I've discovered that it seems, anyway, that a lot of folks think of their relationship with God as sort of one that is one of hide and seek, that, that God has hidden himself from us. He set the world into motion, perhaps, but he's hidden himself from us, and he's actually created a bunch of obstacles in between us and him. And we have to somehow seek and, and look and search and work and struggle to somehow maybe someday get some sort of inclination or idea that maybe he even exists. <laughs> this game of hide and seek that we've turned into uh, applying even to our, our lives and our relationships with God. There's another it wasn't so much a game, but it was more of an activity that we did when I was a kid, and maybe this still happens. I'm not sure. We lost our elementary school children, but uh, it was called show and tell. Anybody remember show and tell? I mean, I don't know if they still do show and tell, but I didn't really understand show and tell, what it really was when I was a kid. I just thought it was like a, a thing, show and tell, you know, like one word, show and tell. Like, we're going to do show and tell. I was like, okay, let's do show and tell. It was only later in my later, you know, childhood years where I began to realize there was three words there, show and tell. Oh, we're actually going to show and tell. Oh, I get it. So I get to bring, and maybe it was one or two kids every Friday in my class that got to bring an item from home, a, uh, you know, a pet or a plant or a, a piece of clothing or a family heirloom or a special memento or something that was important to them, and they got to show it to the whole class. And as they showed it, they got to tell about it. And in showing and telling, not only did the class get to see what that particular item was all about, but they got to see about what that person, that child was about. And it seems to me that if we were to compare these two games, the second one would be much more appropriate and think about our relationship with God, that, that God, especially if you think about this season that we're in, that God sent his son Jesus to show and tell the world about who he was. God, was not, God is not hiding so that we might have to seek after him. He is making himself 
available and evident in his son, Jesus. He gave of his very son to the world that he might show his son and and, and tell of his love to the world through this gift of of Jesus. And, And he gave his son, Jesus, that Jesus himself might show to the world just who God is and and tell the world of of the character and the essence and the nature of who God is. So if you ever have to compare these games, just remember, hide and seek no in relationship to our our walk with the God. Hide and seek no, show and tell, absolutely, this is what we are talking about. And we've been talking about how in Hebrews, the Hebrew writer has this wonderful verse, this wonderful phrase that that it comes at the very beginning of, of his, his book where he says this, and let's read it together. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The sun is the radiance. He's the, he's the light, the warmth, the glow of God to the world. He is the, the showing and the telling. He's the, the one who is the, God's gift to the world expressing God's love, and he's God's gift to the world Revealing God's glory to the world. The radiance of God's glory. Jesus makes his char- God's character and nature visible to humanity. When we see Jesus then, as we've been saying over these last couple of weeks, we see God. When we get a good glimpse of Jesus, how he lived, what he valued, what he said, then we believe we can get a better understanding of who God is, who God the Father is, what he values, what his character is, what is important to him, what makes him, what makes him tick. So again, I want to look at a few verses from the Gospel of Mark this morning, chapter 1, and, uh, and just a little, another little vignette. We're moving our way through this first chapter in Mark's Gospel. Remember Mark's Gospel? Likely the first gospel written down, the first gospel account. Mark's gospel, remember, again, very sparse in detail. Mark, not interested in a lot of extra stuff, just urgently getting the facts out about the life of Jesus. And here he is again, writing of some of the most important moments in the early days of Jesus's ministry, not only in terms of what it said about Jesus or what it said about the people with whom he interacted, but about what this story would say about the father who had sent him. Let's stand together, can we? Let me read it for us. It's Mark chapter one, and we're going to read verses 14 to 20. At the end, I'll say this word of the Lord, and you can say, thanks be to God. Later on, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee where he preached God's good news. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. One day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water. For they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little farther up the shore, Jesus saw Zebedee's sons, James and John, in a 
boat repairing their nets, he called them at once. And they also followed him, leaving their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And everybody, you can be seated. And as you do, just say with me, Zebedee. Zebedee, because it's fun to say, and I could tell as I got to say it, you were jealous and wanted to say it with me. Well, if last week the question was from our text that, that I sort of drew out was, where are you from? Then it seems like the question from this text that sort of stands out to me at least is, what do you do? What do you do? It's the question that, that adults at least are pretty used to having someone ask us, and I've told you my stories about my answer. I'm, you know, actually, I'm a pastor. Uh, you know, I have to qualify what I do, but um, we're, we're used to it for the most. Again, it's part of that, kind of that feeling out process that adults do in different settings. You know, where are you from? You know, do you have any family? And by the way, what do you do? You know, and we kind of want to know. We, we want to sort of maybe get a little bit of a, a marker uh, as to where we might sort of stand in comparison to this person that we're talking with, just both in terms of, of maybe our financial well-being or our, our intellectual capacity or just our other abilities or talents, or maybe we're not really concerned about the comparison issue. Maybe we're just interested in people, and we just really like to know what people do. And we're fa- I'm, if you're like me, I'm just really fascinated by what some of you all do. And uh, other people that I've met, I've met some of the most intriguing people who do some of the strangest and most wonderful things in, in the world. And, and some of those are just very commonplace jobs, perhaps, but, but the way the person does them or the little take they make on it, it's just, just really interesting stuff. So we're kind of used to this question, what do you do? And, and, and we're, we're thinking about, I, I was talking with a friend of mine, though, this week who, was, who called me. Because he has an eighth grade son, and at least according to him, I am a oh, wise one when it comes to high school because I have two high school students in my home. So he was asking me, his son's thinking about different high schools in town, and he wanted me to give my perspective on the different schools in town and the different things going on at the different schools. And, and you know, I began to kind of share with him what I knew and what I could talk about, but it was interesting that the more we discussed this situation, and if you have teenagers especially, you'll be aware of this, or if you have had them recently, the, the, the more we talked about school, the less we actually talked about things like reading, or writing, or math, or history. Really, the conversation that, that we were having was all about what these kids do at school, what clubs are available to them, what teams can they be a part of, what academies can they join into. And it was so striking to me as I listened to this and participated in this conversation about school that we were really talking about what kids are learning. We were talking about what kids are doing. And it just really made me, just all the teenagers in the room, God bless you. Just feel free to learn. Just feel free to go to school. Don't even feel free. Don't, don't feel like you have to do anything, really, more than that. I'm seeing some other teens and college students around. Just, in fact, just 
We did this a little bit last week, but just take a moment and find a person younger than you. Actually, a younger person. Find like a teenager or a college age person. And would you just ask them, what is it that you, I mean, I get this question asked all the time. What, so what do your kids like to do? Well, why don't you ask them, you know? And, but it's really interesting because people seem to be kind of searching for like the thing that they really is, what they really do. And I'm like, oh, they just, you know, this is what they like to do. So what I want you to do is I want you to find a younger person, a, a teenager, a college, just ask them, not, not kind of what club they're a part of or, or what academy they belong to, but, but what do they, re- ask them really quick, what do you really like to do? What do you really like to do? Ask them right now. Ask them. And teenagers, college students, share with them openly. Share with them openly. What do you like to do? I see a bunch of teenagers just asking each other what they like to do, so that's good. That's good. This, this area needed to be invaded by uh, older adults, but that's fine. We'll, we'll get you guys later. Um, seriously, don't, just, just, uh, just, just don't feel the, the heat, the pressure. Just, just be and do who God's calling you to be and do. Our, our reading today is so interesting, this, these verses. It starts out with uh, a, a recounting of a, a sermon that evidently Jesus preached over and over again. It was just, he was a one-hit wonder, evidently. The kingdom of God is, is near. Repent and believe the good news. And if you're anything like like me, I mean, we just started. Mark, you just, we just got it here. We just, I mean, we're just getting going in the story. And all of a sudden, we're talking about kingdom of God and repent and good news. And these are all big, like, ivory tower, sort of seminary-sounding words. And, and it's sort of, if you're anything like me, if I were hearing this sermon at this point, I kind of would have, you know, right here, it would have been like, okay. And I just sort of wonder, even as I read this scripture this week again, and maybe even as you heard it, you, you heard that first couple of verses, 14 and 15, you're like, okay, okay, all right. But it was at verse 16 where things really began to lock into focus. Because here we began to hear this story of Jesus' call of his first disciples. And it was just a great reminder to me that as important as like theology and doctrine and this kind of teaching really is, it's action and it's stories that help us so much better to really truly understand. And what I want to suggest to you today is that verses 16 and 20 are actually sort of an illustration of what Jesus is teaching in verses 14 and 15. And so we'll get back to that in just a few minutes. But look at verses 16 through, through 20. What an amazing what an amazing story this, 
these fishermen, this come follow me stuff. This is the nitty gritty, the real life practical stuff that we, uh, that we can kind of sink our teeth into. Um, it, but what Mark has already said about Jesus in the first 13 verses of his, of his gospel account, it doesn't seem like Jesus really would have needed any help at all. But, but right off the bat here, Mark is telling these stories about how Jesus has invited these men to come alongside him and to serve alongside him. It's interesting, in Luke's gospel, Luke doesn't describe the call of the disciples until, after, uh, until chapter 5, after he had already uh, shared, re- reported about some other very impressive events. You can kind of look back at there, Luke talked about some other really impressive events going on in the life of Jesus, and then he got to the, the call of the disciples. Matthew's gospel as well, it doesn't happen until chapter 4, he's got lots of other things going on in chapters 1 and 2 in particular, but... Not until chapter 4, after he's done, Matthew has done sort of a lengthy description of Jesus' uh, temptation in the wilderness and this kind of this whole discussion about Jesus' move from Nazareth to Capernaum, all these other details. Then, then finally Matthew gets to the call of the first disciples. But Mark, Mark, this one who, again, doesn't really want to include too much, but just just what's important, crucial to the story. Mark has this call of the disciples right here at the top. The very beginning of Act 1 in the public ministry of Jesus. There's a lot that Mark leaves out in these stories, that's for sure. There's a lot that we don't know about this interaction, this conversation that Jesus would have had with these would-be disciples? Why does Jesus call these particular four? Why, does, why do they respond to him the way that they do? I, just a couple of the questions that, that might arise just from a plain reading of the text. But even with their lack of detail, the scenes begin to reveal something to us about not only the way that Jesus interacts with human people, but the way that God views humanity, and the way that God views the the place of humanity within his overarching purposes for the world. Here was a narrative showing not just a daily encounter in the life of Jesus, like here's a day in the life of Jesus, but here was a story that was helping Mark's early readers, and I think still is helping us to shape our, our understanding of who God is. Interesting, one writer that I read pointed out that we have no idea how many generations the Zebedee family had been fishing on the, Z, on the Sea of Galilee. On the Z of Galilee, almost it said. We have no idea, but it had most likely been many, many, many generations In this country and in this culture, as in many other countries and cultures still to this day, a small family business could be handed on not only through generations, but through through centuries. It would be safe and secure. People know what they're doing. If times are hard, the usual answer is simply to work a little bit harder. Peter and Andrew, James and John, what do you do? I'm a fisher man. 
my dad was, my granddad, my great-granddad, my great-granddad's dad and his granddad. and We've been fishermen in this place and on this sea. This is what we do. And then, and then along comes this young prophet from Nazareth. And he tells these fishermen to drop it all and follow him. And, and they did. Oh, there's much we don't know about the encounter, but there are some things that are unmistakable. And, and you could identify these and notice these, but let me just kind of draw these out and maybe give us a, a little bit of a win, or a little bit of a glimpse into the window that these truths reveal to us not only about what was going on here between Jesus and the disciples, but about what we can know about God. The, the first idea is simply this, that Jesus in these, in these verses, Jesus in these interactions issues a call that is strangely authoritative. Do you, do you hear that? The words, the text, we, we, can't, we can't tell as we read it what Jesus' tone was. There's, there's, you know, there's no inflection necessarily noted. It, it could be imagined as, as a command, come and follow me, like strong and, and clear. It could be heard, maybe some of us hear it more as a gentle invitation to these disciples, come and follow me. Maybe it was a prophetic call, we hear it as, but whatever the tone, the call comes through with this unmistakable clarity and this unmistakable authority. Other teachers and philosophers of the day would have competed for their followers. They would have... They would have shown their value to those would, who would be followers and tried to sort of win them over to, to follow them and to come along their way. Jesus, though, is presented here as one who simply issues a summons. No, no, no competition, I, no, no sales pitch, no list of the benefits that they would receive if they were to follow after him, no goods here to be marketed, no, no consumerism at all out of Jesus. He doesn't try to convince anybody to follow him. He just, he just calls. And this is of particular interest to me in the world in which we live. Because, I don't know if you've noticed this this week, but everywhere you turn, every TV or radio or computer you turn on or open up, every phone you look at, someone or something is marketing to you <laughs> and to me. Someone or something is trying to convince me that their way is the best way. And that I should forsake all other ways to, to go their 
way. Even the, even the church world falls into this. We're a consumer-oriented culture, and whether it's lunch or a new, uh, you know, a new book or a new shower stopper. That's one of the things that I wanted to buy this week on Amazon. I was trying to think of what I bought most recently on Amazon. We, we won't buy it until we read 20 reviews. We won't go to lunch somewhere until we see at least four and a half stars and several good reviews. We, we're a consumer-oriented. We need to be won over. We need to be convinced. We need to see that list of benefits that will be ours if we give ourselves to that. And Jesus says, I'm not playing that game. Jesus just calls. And I wonder, as I listen to this, if in our day we're able to hear the call of Jesus as authoritative as these fishermen did. I, I wonder if in our day, too many of us would be comparing his invitation with those that we received from other competing interests, trying to figure out how we can, how we can do this and this. I think this, this authoritative call reveals the heart of God to us, that as we learn in the Old Testament, he's a jealous God. He'll be God alone to us. He won't share with any other gods. He, he doesn't call us to somehow fit him into our life. And that the whole language of inviting Jesus or inviting God into our hearts and into our lives is so seemingly misspoken. He, he's not... He's not calling us to invite him to become a part of our lives. He, he's calling us to, to become a part of his life. All of who we are for all of who he is. Can we hear the authoritative call of Jesus? The authoritative call of God in our lives today. It's interesting, another unmistakable observation, really, of the story is that this call of Jesus to the disciples is, is not one just to, to kind of be in this, in this status. It's not just to take on a, a title or a, 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 a name, but it's actually a, a call to a, a new level of involvement. It, it, unmistakably, this, this conversation is one in which Jesus invites the, the disciples to, to do something. And, and we hear the words, come and follow me. And the words, and I will make you, I will show you how to be fishers of people. Here's Jesus, who, again, from all that Mark has said about him in the first 13 verses, would seem to be more than self-sufficient, more than able to handle his own business in the world in which he had come to, to serve and to do his work. Here's Jesus, with all this ability and, 
and wisdom and the very Son of God that's been revealed into the world, it would seem that he would have things in hand. And yet here is Jesus saying, come and follow me. And it appears that it's not only for the benefit of these disciples, but for the benefit of the overarching mission of God as well. Here's Jesus inviting these disciples to a level of participation in the work and mission of God, both in following him in discipleship, involving and participating in this very life of God, and involving and participating in the very mission of God in reaching and extending the kingdom of God to as many as would be possible. As many fish had been fished out of the Sea of Galilee in all those generations, now Jesus was calling them to join him in his work of reaching to this humanity with the good news that he had come to proclaim. I can't get over it. Can you hand me the bulletin right there, Thomas? I, I still can't get over it. But a few years ago, we, we made this the mission statement of our local church, and it's written there on the front of your bulletin if you have one. We are glad you are here. No, that's not the mission. It's down below. <laughs> it is a mission of ours that, that you would be here and that we would be glad. But, but the mission down, is down below, and I still, every time I, well, to be honest, I don't read it every week, but every time it catches my eye again or I think about what we have said is we desire to be the mission of our local church, it just blows me away. That our mission would be to be a community participating with God in his loving and redeeming purposes for the world. I think Jesus' actions in inviting these disciples to come and follow him and to receive his his training and discipleship, his, to, to become his apprentices in, in fishing for people, <laughs> become those who would, who would share with him in the mission of God in the world, is this incredible invitation that resonates with the very heart of God that, that somehow in his providence, in God's wisdom, he would see fit not only to create humanity and create a people to be in relationship with him, but to create a people that would become participants with him in his overarching, loving, and redeeming purposes for all of his creation. You just got a promotion. <laughs> Did you hear me? You just, got a, you just got bumped up a few notches on the pay scale. No longer, no longer can we think of ourselves as simple observers or, or, or kind of spectators to what it is that God is doing in the world in loving and redeeming creation? We've been invited to become participants. So it means that when he's bringing, when he's bringing healing to people in our community who are hurting deeply, it will quite possibly be through your words of encouragement and comfort. That when he's bringing life 
into the guiling home and, 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 and healing in his own way. It will likely be through you showing up and taking a turn, bringing a meal. When, when God is reaching to the refugee or the homeless and extending love and care and compassion, it will likely be through the hands and the feet and the wallets and the voices of people like us. When God is caring for the unborn, when God is reaching to those who have no voice, it will likely be through people like us. It, I, when we come into worship on Sundays, we should read that and just, and just fall on our knees. <laughs> just, just like fall on our knees. Just overwhelmed on one level and so humbled on the other that God would, would just say, I got some work to do in this world, loving and redeeming work. And guess what? It's us together. So we fall on our knees and then we get up off of our knees because a third observation is that the call of Jesus is responded to without hesitation. <laughs> I mean, this, this, these, these men, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they, there's no account, at least in Mark, he's maybe, you know, Leave something out, but in his account, it's just, okay, okay. It's maybe, some scholars have said, maybe it's the most perplexing feature of this text. Why do these fishermen immediately leave their businesses? Why do they immediately leave their nets? Why do they immediately leave their family? And what we heard and we thought about this, if, if we consider, if we truly think about all that they have, all that this would mean to them, maybe we could suppose that they thought of this as a promotion, that, that maybe that, that, that they understood this at some level to be like a step up for them, bigger and better things. But there isn't any indication in the text that they received any award or reward in that moment. Or that they had any sense that they would. It was simply, come and follow me. I'll teach you how to be fishers of people. That would have just been confusing, right? Just odd in that moment. What the disciples seem to be promised in that instruction, uh, in that promise of instruction, is that they will be placed into some strange situations. And some strange situations that they could imagine even in that moment that could produce, produce conflict and and perhaps even persecution. It seems that at best they're giving up an occupation with a secure market for one that is ill-defined at best. But somehow they're compelled to follow him. A man who, whom they cannot understand on a journey that will perplex and confuse them to a destination as yet unspecified. I was reading this week in Genesis chapter 12 and, and God says to Abram, he says, Abram, come out from here and go to a land that I will show you. That is the, that is the craziest thing. It is one thing to, to follow God to a land that he tells you about. 
to, to at least have some sense that God knows where we're going. But for God to say, come out, I'll, follow me to a land that I will show you. It's like, do you know? Because <laughs> I'd kind of like to know if you know before I go. And yet Abram, it says, left and went with God. I, I, it, another story I read this week of Elijah and uh, calling Elisha to come and follow after him. And uh, Elijah says, you know, just, just leave, leave the oxen, leave your work, come and follow me. And he, he, he do you remember this? He, he, he tore up his, his ox cart and made a fire and burned the oxen and the sacrifice to God, Elisha said, I'm, I'm all in. I, I'm leaving it all behind. My occupation, my earnings, it's done. I'm completely given to God. And it's in these same sort of patterns that now Jesus calls these disciples. And they, they leave it all. They leave it all, security and family. And we know what it is, right? We know what it is. It's a journey of faith. It's a journey of faith. And I think this invitation and the response of the disciples to it is the invitation again that God is giving to us to step in faith, to believe in him, to trust in him, and to respond to him. That this is a bigger picture than just simply for these disciples, but for all people, that there would be a willingness on our parts to respond in radical discipleship. See, I think this, 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 this response and this invitation demonstrates that, that God, God values being formed as a disciple. God values being shaped as his people. Uh, N.T. Wright was commenting on this passage and he spoke about taking a walk in the evening sunlight by a, a Scottish harbor. And N.T. Wright is Scottish and so he spells harbor with an O-U. That's just a little sidelight that I thought was great. And, and interestingly, the, the, the walk was being taken in the town of St. Andrews, and he was thinking about this passage, and he said he came upon a man mending a, a lobster pot, which is a lobster trap, for those of you like me who thought a lobster pot is the pot in which you boil the lobster. It's not. A lobster pot is the lobster trap, at least to people who live in uh, Great Britain. Wright asked the man how he would have responded. He came upon this man working on his lobster pot, and Wright had been thinking about this passage, and he just asked the man, how would... How, how he would have responded if, if Wright himself had asked the man to just leave his pot and follow after him. I just thought that was so funny, just for a guy to actually do that. And then he asked him, well, what if Jesus would have said that for you, would have asked you to do that? Only when we think again about the sort of life that Peter and Andrew, James and John had known, and the unknown future that Jesus was inviting them into, can we understand how earth-shattering this story and this idea can really be? God, God is serious about this call to discipleship, and he's serious about our response as well.
You see, in, in his sermon, in, uh, back in verses, verse 15, basically, God, God, Jesus was saying, actually to the people at large, kind of what he would say to the disciples in just a few minutes. He, he would say, the, 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 the family business is, is, is done. The, the way that we have been and that you have been, the people of God to this point, is, is we're moving on to a new business. And the business that Jesus was talking about was the kingdom of God. We're moving on from how we have been in relationship to God to a new day. The time has come. I am here. The kingdom of God is near, not in terms of, of like time, but in terms of space. The kingdom of God is near and that it's almost here. It's, the kingdom of God is near because I am here, Jesus is saying. And because the kingdom of God is here, God is doing some brand new things in the world and Your invitation, your call, his sermon went, is to repent and to believe, to repent of the lack of allegiance that we have displayed to this point and sign on to complete and total loyalty to God for the future. To to believe is 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 to quit trusting in all the other things that we have trusted to this point and to begin to believe that God can really do something in us and through us that will take us to a whole new understanding of what our purpose in this place is all about. You see, that's just what, what Peter and Andrew and James and John did. <laughs> and that's just what believers in every age and in every place called to do. That's who our God is. And that's what he calls us to. Let's stand together, can we? Invite our worship team to come.